All right, good morning, familia. My name is Hannibal Rodriguez. For those of you who don't know me, um, I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church, whether you are worshiping with us in person or you're worshiping with us online. We are so grateful that we get to do this together. Uh, we are currently doing a series we have called Gospel Culture, in which we are looking um, uh, into 12 biblical, biblical traits that help us define what it means to be a church. And it helps us, um, it, it creates for us kind of a blueprint of the things that we need to believe and practice in order for us to experience a spiritual renewal, constant spiritual renewal. And at the same time, it gives us the tools necessary for us to continue to remain faithful and fruitful in the midst of a changing society. Today we're going to talk about gospel culture trait number five. And we're going to be talking about the, the pursuit of the common good. And this is the reason why we read uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse, uh, read verses 4 through 9. And what I'm going to try to do this morning uh, with the time uh, I have is to answer these three questions. Why must the church pursue the common good? What do we need to pursue it? And who will respond to God's call? Why, what, and who? I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say this in a, the most gentle way possible. This is for you. Go ahead, go ahead. And then you respond and say, no, no, no. This is for you. You got that? First question. Why must the church pursue the common good? Before I give you a definition... Um, I need to give you the, the context of the text. Because if you don't get the context of the text, this is not going to make any sense to you. And you will not be able to see how radical was what the Lord was asking his people to do. And to give you the context, I have to give you a verse that is extremely, extremely popular among Christian circles. It's one of those verses that you will find somewhere in your house if you're a believer, or you will find somewhere in your friend's house if you are a believer. This is one of those verses that you find either in a coffee mug or a picture frame or tattooed on somebody's arm or is part of is your screensaver. So this is the verse. This is the same chapter. We didn't read the same chapter, chapter 29, verse 11. This is what it says. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's a beautiful verse. How many of you guys have that verse at home? There it is. Now, who wouldn't want that verse? Actually, I think that that's an amazing verse. I, I, I think that you should have it. I think that you should have it in your home. I think that you should buy a coffee mug. Every time you, you drink coffee, you remember that the Lord has plans for you. I think it's important that you put it in your screensaver. When you open your computer, oh, the Lord has plans for you. Plans not to harm me, but to protect me. Plans for hope and future. Beautiful verse. So I want to ask you, what comes to mind when you think of that verse? What is the image that you create in your head when it comes to that verse? See, let me share with you the image that comes to my head when I think of that verse. I, I think of a place like Hawaii, for example. Right? Have you ever been there? I've never been there, but I've seen the pictures. It looks nice. 
So, so imagine, you know, the, the warm weather. That looks like that verse. Imagine the view of the ocean and the sound of the waves. Whoosh. Imagine the breeze hitting your hair or what you have left of it. <laughs> and what I have left of it. Imagine someone singing and dancing the Hawaiian thing. <laughs> Imagine you're grabbing a little rock, you know, one of the flat ones, and you go to the, to right at the edge of the water and you throw it in the water and it does the jumping thing. And it paints this picture of the plans of the Lord, plans of prosperity, not to harm me, plans to give me hope and a future. How many of you guys like that plan? You know what? That is not the context of the verse. That is not the context of that verse. As beautiful as it is, that is not what is happening here. And what I want to show you here is that when God is giving this purpose, this plan, these promises, promise to his people, he is writing to a group of people that are right in the middle of pain and struggle. You know how I know that? Because that's how chapter 29 starts. Look at what it says. This is a letter written by the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, had carried into exile. Now, this is super interesting. Uh, this Babylonian king goes to Jerusalem about in, five, about in the year 500, middle of my 500, the end of 500 BC. He takes the Israelites from Jerusalem. He carries them to um, Babylon. He kills a bunch of people here. He takes all the goods from the city and takes it to his city. And he takes the most capable and brilliant people from Jerusalem and takes them to Babylon. That's where the story of Daniel comes in. You remember that story? That is the story of Jeremiah chapter 29. You know, it is believed that this is probably the second or third generation of exiles living in Babylon. This is a group of people that have been struggling for years and years and years and years. This is a group of people that have heard the stories of the oppression that their great-grandparents uh, faced. Now, if you think that that's a nice thing for you to be there, I want you to see and I want you to feel what these people felt living in Babylon. I'm going to give you a rated R verse. And it's a verse that you must understand and read because it's in the Bible. This is the feeling of the Israelites living in Babylon. Psalm 137. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. But look at what verse 9 says. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes, and dashes them against the rocks. 
That is not going to be a verse you put in the homes under the screensaver. That is not going to be one of those verses that you put somewhere in your body. This is what these people are struggling with. This is what the people, these people are going through. And this is the same people that the Lord says, I have plans for you. A plan for prosperity, protection, hope, and future. You know why that matters? And you know why you and I need to hear this today? Because we have this tendency to reduce the blessings of God and the plans of God as him taking us to different places under different circumstances. Removing all the people that we don't like and removing all the people that, um, that will cause pain. Removing from our, our lives the people that are complicated. Removing anything that makes us feel hurt. The tendency... Of the, new, of, the, of the modern church is to reduce the blessings of God as God taking your problems away, your pain away, complicated people away. But what I want you to see is that God is making that promise to people that are living in pain and will continue to struggle with pain. Not the removal of your problems. Now, this is super interesting because the verse that I just showed you, in verse 1, it says that this king was the one responsible for carrying the Israelites into Babylon. It was his fault, his responsibility. He made it happen. But if you pay attention to the text we read, there's one phrase that is repeated in verse 4 and in verse 7, just in case you miss it. Look at what it says in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Don't you find that weird? It is the king of Babylonia, the ones that did it, but at the same time the Lord says, it was me, it was I, it was, I'm the one responsible to take you there. And this is where uh, some Christians struggle because you would say, wait, hold on a second. The Bible is contradicting itself because on one end says that this, this was the responsibility of the king and on the other end says that it was the responsibility of God. And uh, this is what some scholars will call some, a term that is it's a sociological call, uh, term, I believe. It's called uh, antinomy, which is an apparent contradiction of two truths. Similar to what we have when we talk about the sovereignty of God and human responsibility or the sovereignty of God and prayer, here, from a human perspective, that doesn't make any sense to us. But from a divine perspective, it makes complete sense. This was both the king doing it and God doing it. And for the purpose of this sermon, you have to understand that it, is, it, it was clear that was the Lord putting his people in Babylon. The question is, why? To make him suffer? I don't think so. To make their life miserable? I don't think so. To make him learn? Maybe not. One thing is clear, though. That's part of the reason why the Lord takes his suffering people to Babylon 
is because the way he transforms this community, the way he transforms this world, the way he transforms everything and is making all things new, one of the means, one of the ways is through his people. In God's design, God's plan, he had to take his people, put them there so they could be a blessing to those that didn't like them. Listen up, church. God carries this group of people and put them there for their sake so they could be a blessing to the ones that don't deserve the blessing. You know what verse I never seen in a coffee mug, in a picture frame, in a screensaver or on a tattoo? One little verse that Jesus said, love your enemies. You know what? I've never seen that verse anywhere because he doesn't make money. It's not appealing, not even for Christians, not even for you and me. And we must remember that God so loves the world that he takes his people and puts them right in the middle of enemy camp for God's people to be a blessing. You know how I know that? Because that's exactly what he says in verse 5. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what what you produce. And marry, that doesn't mean marry them, but marry each other and have sons and daughters, increase in number there and do not decrease. This is what God says to a group of exiles, foreigners, immigrants. He says to them, be there, live there, become residents. Be, make of Babylon your temporary home. Establish yourself there. Work, multiply, have kids, and increase in number. Notice that he doesn't say what modern Christians say today. Run away like crazy. Hide. Isolate yourself. Be careful, don't get contaminated. Create your own community so you don't mingle with those pagans. Christianity is so radical. Our God is so radical that he does the opposite. He calls his people to become resident aliens. Someone that lives there but that knows that you belong somewhere else. Someone that is living there but knows that their citizenship is not here but in heaven. Someone that is willing to be there without compromising convictions. Now, the text gets even more radical because not only the Lord calls them to be present, but he calls them to be intentional, to be active and not passive. This is what we see in verse 7. Seek Uh, For the peace and the prosperity of the city. Remember, this is where the enemies are. To which I have carried you into exile. Pray for the Lord for it. Because if he prospers, you too will prosper. This is gospel people. God is calling gospel people to really, really care for your neighbor. That's what the word seek there in the original. To care, really care. God calls his people to bring peace and prosperity. The right word there, it will be shalom. To seek for the shalom of the place where the Lord has placed you. And then he does even more. He says, pray for them. Pray for their prosperity. 
Listen, not pray for vengeance. Not pray for the wrath of God to come upon them. Not pray for, you know, oh, please forgive them, but keep them away. No, 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 no. He says, pray for them. Pray for their prosperity. You know why? Because it's really hard to hate someone when you're praying for them. It is really hard to be indifferent when you've prayed for the very person that hates you. This is part of what it means to be the great commission and the great commandment church. This is part of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. See, the word shalom, man, uh, shalom there, like peace and prosperity, means to love people enough to care for them, to care for them in both body and soul. To care for the material and the immaterial. To care for the physical and the spiritual needs of a person. The word shalom can be translated as health, welfare, deliverance, salvation, success, wholeness. It's to seek for the common good. Listen up, church. Of the very people who don't want you. How easy it is to love and serve the people that love you. How radical it is to choose to bless and care the ones that don't like you. See, Christianity at the end of the day is about choosing to use your talents and your abilities. Not for you, but for the sake of others. To recognize that God has placed you right where you are to contribute to his plans. To know that there's no mistakes when God takes weeping people and puts them in the middle of a community that don't love them. You are where you are because the Lord placed you there. If you're a Christian, you are a resident alien. And you exist and you are here to work, to serve, to love, and to give yourself for others. You are not here as a tourist. You know what the difference is between a resident alien and a, and a tourist? The tourist, the only thing they do, that's what I do. You go on vacation, you use the place, you take their goods, and you run. It's okay to do it when you go on vacation. But that can be your life. I'm not here to use and run. I'm not here as a consumer. I'm here because the Lord placed me here to contribute, to be a blessing to this community, this nation, this world. And you too. You know, it's interesting, right at the end of verse 7, there's a verse that you must understand because that verse explains why is it that sometimes we don't find and we don't feel the blessings of God. It says right at the end of verse 7 that when the city prospers, the word prosper, there is shalom. That when the city experiences shalom, you too will prosper. That means that you too will experience shalom. And that is so important, church. Because he tells you that none of us, if you're a believer, that none of us get to fully experience what it means to be blessed. 
that we don't get to fully experience what it means to have peace with God, the joy of God, the wholeness of God, the completeness of God, the fullness of God, unless you learn to give yourself away. Unless you learn that it is better to give than to receive. Isn't that a countercultural message, though? Because everything we have heard since we're, we were little ones is that what, are, what matters most is what you think, is what you want, is your autonomy, is your desires, is your dreams, is your freedom. You tell me if you are free when you don't know how to deny yourself for the sake of somebody else. You're not free. You're a slave to yourself. I'm a slave to myself. There's nothing that gives us more joy. There's nothing that gives us more of the feeling of the blessings of God than to be able to say, I died to myself for the sake of the very people who don't want me. This is the great irony of modern people, I would say. We got this mixed thing going on in which we value individualism and autonomy and freedom. And at the same time, we value loving your neighbor and justice. You know what the problem is, though? That if you are first, you will not care about anybody else ever. Therefore, um, egocentrism, self-centeredness, individualism... And loving your neighbor never go together. You will love one and hate the other. Only the gospel gives us the freedom to be able to say no to ourselves for the sake of other people. That's what it means to be the church. Someone may say, well, Hannibal, don't, don't, don't use passages from the Old Testament. You know that those that apply to the church today were New Testament people. You know what's interesting? I'm glad that you think like, like that because I'm about to correct that thinking. <laughs> Did you know that the word exiles, foreigners, is one of the terms used in the New Testament to describe what it means to be a believer? That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of uh, Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered. Chapter 2, verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. That's what it means to be a believer, a resident alien. Someone that understands that we're not here to run or to hide or to assimilate because we belong to a different, a different country. That's what it means to be the church, a group of people that we understand that we are here on mission. That we are not here to just cruise around. We are not just tourists. We are not here to consume. That's what it means to be the church. To know that we have been placed by God in his sovereignty where we are. To love people, places, and things. To bring shalom. To care for people enough to care for their bodies and their souls. To love people with words, with the proclamation of the gospel, and with actions, acts of compassion. That's what it means to be the church, to pray. To pray for the ones that nobody, wants, nobody else wants to pray for. To pray for your enemies. 
Because it's really hard to be indifferent when you pray for your enemies. I would recommend 1 Peter and 2 Peter if you really understand, want to understand what this looks like. Peter calls us Christians, chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You know what that means? To be holy means to be set apart. Listen up. To be set apart from something for something. Not to create your own little Christian ghetto. With your own Christian... Oh, you know, please forgive me because we have one of those. Christian schools only. Nothing wrong with that, but that is not the only model. Not just to listen to your own Christian music and to eat your Christian food and to buy your Christian perfumes and to write whatever Christian you want. We are here to be in the world, but not of the world. We need wisdom. We need holiness. We need commitment. We need convictions. We don't compromise any of that, but we don't run from this world. This world belongs to our God. And he's got plans. And you're part of that. You have been placed where you are for the glory of God and the common good. So next time you look at the picture frame you have at home and you remember that the Lord has plans for you not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future, remember that that does not mean that he's taking you out of this world. So the second question has to be, what do we need to pursue the common good? And I want to give you three things, and I hope you remember them. To pursue the common good means that you have to be intentional about practicing faithful presence. Can you say faithful presence? The Lord calls these people to build houses. You know what's the difference between renting and buying? You don't care about the renting. You treat it as whatever. You buy a house, you take care of that house. In a renting, you stay a couple of years when you buy, most likely 30 years you're going to be a slave to that house. But the principle is this, that God was calling his people to stay put, to live intentional lives, to stick around, and to live public faith. You know that our faith is not private. You know that our faith is not just for Sunday. Our faith is from Monday through Saturday. This is extra. You know that we're supposed to live lives in which everyone could see our faith. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? Let your light shine before others. Can you say before? So that they may see. Listen up, church. Not just here. But so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If people cannot see your faith, you are not living the life that the Lord purchased for you. See. Here's another one, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for your hope that you have. But do this with gentleness 
and respect. Oh, how much I love that verse. It tells you that your faith is so public that people must wonder, what is it that you have that I don't have? What is it that you, why is it that you work the way you do? Why is it that you love your spouse the way you do? Why is it that you raise your kids the way you do? Why do you do the things you do? If that's not what people are asking, maybe, just maybe, either you're not a Christian yet or you're living a private faith. Maybe, just maybe. You know what's interesting, though? And this one is going to be super personal, you modern-day Christians. Peter says that the way we live our lives and when we give reasons why we believe the, way, the, the, the things we believe, we do it with gentleness and respect. I'm going to be, once again, super personal here. You guys, there's so many of us that are just annoying Christians. That we are known for how many arguments we have, how many posts we put, how many fights we have, but not for gentleness and respect. And I pray that the Lord make of us people of the fruit of the Spirit. So if that's you, I love you, man, but stop it. If that is you, your public faith, not a really good faith. May the Lord forgive you and forgive me. You know, the most popular verse in the last six years has been this. What? Or the saying, well, you know how Jesus went into the temple courts and he overturned the tables? That's what I have to do. And I would say, you know what's the difference between Jesus and you? That he was sinless. His motives were pure. His anger was not sinful. And everything he did, he did it for the glory of God and the love of his people. If that's not you, be quiet. And that's not the phrase I wanted to use. I almost let it out too. Don't use that. Live a public faith, be gentle, be respectful, and let the Lord use you. Faithful presence. Number two, common good is pursued by prayer. When was the last time you prayed for your neighbor? Not just for their salvation, but for the Lord to bless them. When was the last time you prayed for that very person that you find so annoying? When was the last time you prayed for your boss or your supervisor, if he's an annoying person? When was the last time that you prayed for the very people that hate you? You know what it means to pursue the common good? To learn how to pray for those. Pray is, prayer is missional. The common good starts with prayer. And number three, change your mind on how, how you view your work. See, the Lord tells them, plan, work, and seek the shalom of the city. Think about your work as a vocation. 
Think about your work as a calling. Think of your work as the place where you worship the Lord. Think, think of your work as worshiping the Lord. That's the problem with some of the believers today, that we have created this spiritual dualism. You know what that is? When we say that there are things that are spiritual and other things are not spiritual. But if you are a believer and the Holy Spirit lives in you, everything you do is spiritual. Your worship is spiritual. When you work is spiritual. When you read is spiritual. When you go to the washroom is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Therefore, when you look at your, about your, you think about your career, your calling, your job, your vocation, that's also spiritual. You know what's interesting? The Lord placed you where you are to contribute to the common good with your work and to be like God in that place. You know why I say that? Are you a farmer? Maybe not here, but maybe. God was the first farmer. Are you a doctor and nurse? God was the first divine healer. Do you like to build things? God was the first engineer and the first architect. Do you like numbers? God was the first accountant. Do you like to be an investor, entrepreneur? God was the one that started everything. Are you an artist? God was the first artist. Are you a communicator? God is the best communicator. Are you a teacher? We got the best teacher. Are you a construction worker? Our Savior worked with his hands. Are you a carpenter? Our Savior was a carpenter. The Lord placed you where you are with your gifts and abilities and talents for the common good, not just for you. You know, a few months ago when we were doing, uh, we, we called the church to the Missions Fest to collect this uh, big offering that went beyond understanding to many of us. Uh, one of our partner ministries was a center or an organization called Hope for Life, uh, Hope for Life Center. And, and one of our partners is Josephine. And what we wanted to do is to uh, uh, support her and help her because with this ministry, she helps every year thousands of orphans and widows and people with HIV in the name of Jesus. And I want to show you something so you see what happens when people take the common good for real. Look at this video. Oh, these are the miracles of God. Something that we have prayed for so long. And by miracle, God, thank you. The construction is almost complete at the last bit now. See how it is. See how beautiful it is. And the marathon is doing final work. These are the timbers. These are the timbers for roofing. And it will be complete with thank God. We thank God. Mission Bible Church, thank you so much for making this happen. This is great love from our God. The building is getting complete. Miracles. God our giver. Thank you. Thank you. Isn't that beautiful? <clears throat> Did you see that? She said, these are the miracles of God. There's nothing worse than a person with an accent trying to do somebody else's accent. It's so beautiful. You know why that happened? Because Josephine chose to be faithfully present. Do you know why that happened? Because someone decided to pray 24-7 for this to happen. Do you know why that happened? 
because someone in this part of the world used talents and abilities to go to work for the common good and to have enough money to contribute to that. You know why that happens? Because God in his sovereignty chose you and placed you where you are for the common good and to contribute to that. You know why that happens? Because God gave you gifts and abilities to be used. Do you know why that happened? Because God gave somebody else gifts and abilities and talents and a pick, and, and, he, and the person can imagine how to build this place. And do you know why that happens? Because God gave abilities and talents and placed people to build bricks and put cement and work with, uh, with wood. And do you know why that happens? Because God is more interested in the glory of his name and the restoration of all things than, not, than, than more than anything else. And do you know why that happens? Because some of you responded and chose to live different. And I want you to dream with me. Can you imagine what this world will be like if we all live like that? Can you imagine what the page will look like if we all live like that? Can you imagine what Illinois will look like, what the United States will look like, what the world will look like? How many of you guys are students? Raise your hand. I want you to study and study hard. And go as far as you can. But not so you can make money. But to use your talents, your abilities, your position, and your power for the glory of God and the well-being of others. That's what it means to be the church. Do you know that you have been placed by God where you are? There's no mistake. And this is not Babylon, so stop complaining. We got it good. So in 30 seconds, I got to answer this question. Who will respond to God's call? This is the thing. The only people that could give shalom are the people that already have shalom. Isn't that what Jesus came to give us? He came to justify us and to give us peace with God and the peace of God. Romans chapter 5. Do you want health? You have been already spiritually healed. You were forgiven and given a new nature. Do you want welfare? You're already good. You have been forgiven and accepted. You are good. Do you want deliverance? You have been already set free from the condemnation of sin and the power of sin. Do you want success? You are already successful. God is for you and God is in you. Do you want to learn how to disadvantage yourself for the sake of others? Remember that we have a God that disadvantaged himself for your sake. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he emptied himself. That's why he became nothing. That's why he humbled himself. That's why he died for our sins. We know what it means to receive the blessings of God. Now we give it to others. Now you extend it to others. Amen? Let's pray. My wonderful Savior, how much we need to learn to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. How much we need 
to love our enemies. Because when we were your enemies, you loved us and you died for us. Please make that happen. Please make of us a church that really, really cares for the shalom of other people. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...